0: Thanks for tuning into to this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. We're in a series that we're calling uh, What the Bible Says. And uh, I, I think it's really important for us to, 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 to know the scriptures. And, and God's word is alive and it's active and it speaks directly into our lives. But we need to be aware of what God's word says. And So we started last week with What the Bible Says About the Bible. And we really talked about the Bible. And uh, we're, we're tackling something different. But I just want to remind you briefly, just, just quickly, about what we talked about last week. you got to remember this, that the way you got your Bible is not the way we got the Bible. And you got to remember that Christianity was thriving and growing and exploding and it was turning the world upside down long before we ever had the Bible. We didn't have the Bible until about somewhere in the 400s. And long before that, Christianity was exploding. And, and there's a reason. You got to remember this, that as Jesus was walking the earth, nobody was walking around with a, I was going to say pen. Of course, they were around with a pen. But nobody's writing things down. And Jesus would say something. They go, whoa, whoa, slow down. Say that again? Like, that wasn't happening. And when things would happen right in the moment, nobody was saying, ooh, I got I to remember to write that down. Nobody was doing that. That wasn't happening. What happened was Jesus comes along, and he's he's sent by the Father, and he's born as as an infant. And then he grows up, and he's a sinless man, and he has this powerful ministry, and people are starting to follow him, follow him, follow him, follow him. And people are leaving, leaving things behind to follow Jesus. And everything is going great. And then Jesus gets crucified, and we find out he's a fraud. And this is all fake, and it was all for nothing. Except it wasn't. And one of the things that I think we have to remember is this, is that the story of Jesus was actually written because the story of Jesus didn't end on the Roman cross. That's why the story of Jesus was written down. That afterwards, afterwards, you've got to remember this, people saw him alive. He was dead, and they knew he was dead. They pulled him down off the cross. He was buried in a tomb. He was there for three days, which means he wasn't just dead. He was good and dead. And then he rose, and people saw him. And now people like Luke, we looked at last week, and people like John, you'll see today, they're writing things down. They're saying, oh, snap, something happened, and we got to write this down. and we got to write this for future generations, and they start writing it down. And so I think it's very important. The scriptures weren't written. The Bible wasn't written because uh, we don't value the Bible because something extraordinary was written. We vow it because something happened. Something extraordinary happened. That's how we have a Bible. Then they went back and they said, We've got to get this all written down. We've got to make sure for a few generations. And so we just had writings, and we just had writings, and we just had writings. That's all we had. And then after Christianity actually became legalized, right? Remember this in the Roman Empire, if you were a Christian, if you were a follower of Christ, you very well may be killed at certain times, especially under certain emperors. And then Constantine came along, and it almost became the religion of the state, of the Roman Empire. And so now they're gathering writings. Now they're putting writings together, right? Now different church councils through history are meeting. Now after the, four, after the year 400, now these church councils have all agreed on these specific writings, and now we have the Bible. Remember this, we still didn't have printing presses until the 1700s. How many people really had a Bible? And Christianity was thriving. I'm not taking any value away. We need to read our Bible. We have a a wonderful gift that we can have today. But so that's why we're looking at this series and we're saying what the Bible says. And we've looked week one at the Bible. And this week we're going to look about what the Bible says specifically about Jesus. And what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping we get a feel for today is, number one, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? I think that's going to be a big deal. But I think every bit as important as we've got to remember this. Who is Jesus? And what I'm really hoping is that you'll walk away today refreshed, refreshed with who Jesus is. Maybe a, a, a new revelation. Oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't really think about that. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You kind of get into the latter third of the Bible and we have what are called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark. Luke, John, and uh, John chapter 1. When you get that, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. If you're new here, just so you know, we won't be doing up, down the whole morning, right? But we always stand when we read our primary text. And the simple reason is because it's a reminder. It It just reminds us this is actually God speaking. God has a word for us today in Bloomington. God has a word. And so uh, uh, I would say as we're reading, just just remember that God has a word for you today. This is John chapter 1. Follow along as I read. It says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 6, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. He gave, uh, it says, uh, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, they are reborn, not with a physical birth, resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and he was seen... And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father, his one and only Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word now. We thank you that it gives life to us. We thank you that it is truth. And uh, mostly, God, this morning, I think, thank you that it reveals who you are. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. We desperately need you to explain this text, to breathe life into it. And I'm praying that you speak to each of us this morning based on right where we are, where we've come from, and uh, speak into our lives this morning with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. And so we're going to look at some different things about Jesus this morning from the word. And so I'm getting to this text, and normally I'll get to this text right away. I will get to this text still. But just stick your finger in it and hold on to it because I'm going to go somewhere first and then I'm going to come back to this text. So as we think about Jesus this morning, who was Jesus, who is Jesus, I want you to think about a couple different aspects of Jesus first. And the first thing I want you to think about is this. I want you to think about the ministry of Jesus. I want you to think about the ministry that Jesus had while he was here. I want you to think about the ministry that he had to different people. John Mark is probably the youngest of the gospel writers. Uh, John Mark was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He's, he was not a disciple. He may have witnessed some things, but he was not one of the disciples. But we think the gospel of Mark was dictated to John Mark by the apostle Peter. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus. He was not only a disciple of Jesus, he's one of the inner three. We always talk about the the disciples, the closest disciples, we think were Peter. And then James and John, they were brothers. That's the inner circle, kind of. And Peter was one of those. He was there. He saw everything. Now he becomes a traveling partner of John Mark. And he's in prison. And he's probably talking to John Mark and they're saying, we got to get this stuff written down. And so Peter is dictating things to John Mark. And in this passage, he's he's kind of explaining Jesus' ministry. So this is from Mark's gospel. It's Mark chapter 2, and it says this. But when the teachers of religious law, who were the Pharisees, we know that term Pharisees, they were were the very, I don't say this in a good way, they were very religious. Follow the rules, everybody. And so when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, when they saw Jesus eating with tax collectors, P.S., if you, if you knew, we, we talk about this a lot. The tax collectors were just hated by all Jews. They were Jewish tax collectors who worked for the Roman government, right, oppressing Jews. And they were... And they were Stealing money, basically, from the Jews. And it said when they saw Jesus and he's eating with these terrible tax collectors and other kinds of sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Now just stop for a minute. You know we got a problem when religious professionals are calling those people, first of all, they're those people, and they're actually calling them scum. Like this is a problem. But he, he, they asked the disciples, why does Jesus eat with all the terrible people? Why does he do that? The text goes on and says, when Jesus heard this, he can hear it. He told them, "Listen, healthy people don't need a doctor; sick people do." Like that makes sense, right? I mean, I know we go to the doctor for checkups, but the last time you were feeling really awesome and you were feeling great, you didn't say to yourself, "I better run off to the doctor." No, it's, doctors are for are generally for sick people. And then Jesus goes on and he says. I have come. The purpose of my ministry is to call not those who, and these words are interesting to me, not those who think they're righteous, but those people who know they're sinners. Jesus is saying, that was the whole purpose of my ministry. I came for people who get it. They know they're sinners. Now, I don't know if this resonates with you, but I will tell you this on a very personal level. That stuff resonates with me and that stuff ministers to me. Because I was one of those. Like, if you're here this morning, you go, "Ah, I don't know if Jesus, I don't know what Jesus would say to me. I don't know if Jesus is interested in me. I'm one of those. You're exactly who Jesus came for. You and I, we're the people that Jesus actually came for. That speaks to me. Think about about the people that Jesus ministered to just for a minute. Jesus healed blind people. All of a sudden they could see. Jesus healed Deaf ears, like people who could not hear. Jesus healed them. Jesus caused paralyzed and lame people to walk. Jesus caused people who were mute, who could not speak. All of a sudden, they could speak because Jesus ministered to them, because he served them. Jesus cast demons out of people. Now, just stop for a minute. Look at all these categories. You with me? All of these categories in the ancient world were people who were said to be cursed by God. So if you couldn't walk... If you were paralyzed, you know why you were paralyzed? Because you were cursed by God. If you were born that way, you were born under a curse. If you became that way, it's because God was cursing you. If you couldn't see, if you were blind and you were born that way, it's because you were born under a curse. If you became blind, it's because you were being cursed. All of these people are people who are supposed to be cursed by God. Notice that that's who Jesus ministers to. Jesus did several other things. One of the things that Jesus did is he cast demons out of people. Right? I mean, like people who were, oh, they're terrible. They're, they've got a demon. And what's really interesting to me about the miracles of Jesus is that, think about this for a minute, Jesus' detractors never denied that he did these miracles. is that an interesting thought? The people who hated Jesus, who said he's absolutely not God, they never denied it. Watch this. Watch what's recorded in the scripture. There's a time where a demon-possessed man, he's blind. He's demon-possessed, he's blind, and he can't speak either. And he's brought to Jesus. This guy is demon-possessed, he's blind, and he can't speak. And so naturally, people are bringing him to Jesus because they're hearing about the miracles that Jesus is performing. And it says Jesus heals the man. And so now he can both speak and see. Jesus casts the demon out, and he completely heals him. And now this is a guy that everybody would have known was demon-possessed. And now this guy can speak, and now this guy can, can see, Right? That's interesting to me. And when the Pharisees heard about this miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Nobody's denying that he did it. They're just ticked that he did. That's very interesting. His detractors don't even deny that Jesus can do these miracles. Here's another example for you. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? You're doing all these things. Who gave you the right to do them? Jesus had just performed a miracle. How how do you do all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? Even Jesus' detractors did not deny that Jesus was doing these miracles. Listen, when I read this stuff, when I read this stuff, it resonates with me personally. I'll just say this, and we, we won't go into all the details, but I was a foul mouth, smart mouth kid. And we ran around the neighborhood in a little pack, and if you said blank you, I said blank you, and then I said something else creative. And then when I was about a sophomore in high school, I had a youth pastor who just got a hold of me. And he explained to me what it really means to follow Jesus and what it really means to be a Jesus follower. And it's interesting to me, it's just ironic to me that the kid who had the foulest mouth that would say, and we knew, and some of you know what I'm talking about, we knew when to say it, we knew when we couldn't say it. We knew who we could say it in front of and when, who we couldn't say it in front of. And it's like we could turn it on and turn it off. And now the kid with the foulest mouth stands in front on a Sunday morning. Like, how ironic is that? I'm telling you, that, here's what we could do. We could, we could take a microphone, I'm just telling you this. We could pass it around the room this morning And I promise you, we would hear story after story after story after story about the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus changed lives, how Jesus reconciled marriages, how Jesus healed some of you physically, how Jesus has, has healed you of addictions, of powerful addictions. And we could tell story after story after story after story about the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus still changes lives today. This isn't something that just happened back then. This stuff is happening today, and we could fill hours and hours with powerful stories of how Jesus changes lives. We don't have time for that, but we have time for this one. Watch this story.
1: So, I grew up in the church, and um, at age maybe 12, I was given the option whether or not I could go to church. So I was like, "Um, no, I don't want to go to church. I want to sleep in and I don't want to hang out with a bunch of older people and sit in pews and sing hymns. A little bit after I stopped going to church around the age of 12, 13, I met some friends that got into trouble a lot and I started drinking then. Um, I'd get so drunk that I'd black out and not know what happened. That went on. All my teenage years, and about 16 I would say I started smoking pot, and I would smoke, I was just always high. Um, I did all this because I wanted friends, I had social anxiety, so everything, it was scary to even walk through a door that people were standing in front of. When I was maybe about 18, I met this guy who was, had just gotten out of prison. I met him at a party. He had a motorcycle. He finally thought he fixed it, and then he came to pick me up, and then he's like, let's go for a ride. And I was like, oh my gosh, that looks scary. And I'm like, I don't wanna go on that thing. As we were driving, I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, God, I don't wanna die on this motorcycle. And then I remember praying that, and then I, kind of looked in his friend's car in front of us, put on the brake lights and then I grabbed his shirt and I kind of put my head in his back and the next thing you know, it's there's like a boom and then I go flying this way and tumbling on the ground and then he goes this way. The ambulance people didn't even like check me because they were like, you were on the motorcycle? I was like, yeah, and they kind of looked at me like, they didn't believe me. When they took him to the hospital, he had a bunch of broken bones in his face and then I got a call and that they, yeah, that night he passed away. Shortly after that I started, I mean I still kind of, because I was like addicted to the drinking and stuff, I still kind of drink a little bit after that. Um, I started going to Alpha and then slowly, but eventually I just stopped drinking. I started going to church more and felt closer to God. What made me want to get so close to him is like he gave me this gift, like I Survived the motorcycle accident, and my boyfriend didn't. And I was, and it was very clear that I was going down a destructive wrong path. I just what made me want to know him more. I just felt really close to him, and it was an actual relationship rather than just, oh, I go to church. Um, through a friend at work, I met my husband, and we got married, and we had four kids. I never thought that I would have the life of a married stay-at-home mom, it just never dawned on me. If you would have told me that when I was younger, I would have looked at you like you're crazy and been like, that's not happening, that's not true. So now that I've experienced what I went through with anxiety and social anxiety, um, now I hope to raise better godly children. by. If they start going down the same path as me, I can be like, hey, this is what happened to me and set them on the right course and tell them to lean on God all the time.
0: How great is that? I, I mean, it's like God takes something that's just broken and it just seems like a train wreck and then he turns that in and Rayanne and Jesse go here and they volunteer in Tiny Valley and I'm like, yeah, raising godly kids. We're for that, right? We're, yeah, we're for that. We think that's awesome. Like that's what our God does. And so maybe you're here this morning and, and you kind of go, I don't know if Jesus could ever love me. I don't know if God could ever love me. I mean, I'm done some crazy things and I've lived a crazy life. And I'm just saying, man... That's who Jesus came for. That's the whole reason he came for. It's for people who who had these lives that were train wrecks at times. And he's still doing miracles today. And so I would just say, man, when you think about Jesus, number one, think about about the ministry that Jesus had. But I would say there's a second thing you should think about. And that's you should actually think about the resurrection of Jesus. So let me say that again because that's an odd thing. I think you should actually think about the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he rose from the dead. Not say this again because we said it before at the very beginning. Man, the story of Jesus is written down because it didn't end on a cross. It wasn't just the death of Jesus. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And this is again recorded in the scripture, like afterwards. They, they went back and they wrote about it. This was what happened. And, and uh, so, writing about after the death of Jesus, remember that after the death of Jesus, All you had was a lot of disillusioned disciples and you had some heartbroken women and even though he had talked about the fact that he was going to raise from the dead people weren't too sure they were heartbroken man it's over it's over if the the story ends with the death of Jesus just remember this there's no Christianity there's no Christians there's no Bible there's no nothing because it's just another death we have a lot of those but there's the resurrection of Jesus here's how it's recorded in the scripture After the death of Jesus. Now, this is in John's gospel. What we read from earlier this morning. This is John chapter 20 now. It says, Mary, this was Mary Magdalene. I do think you should know this just so you put the pieces together. Mary Magdalene was uh, a demon-possessed woman. And she had had many demons, it was said. And uh, Jesus cast the demons out of her and changed her life. Some some believe that she was a prostitute. That's very possible. We don't know that for a fact. But she certainly was a demon-possessed woman. Right? And now she's standing outside the tomb where Jesus had been buried. And she's crying and she's weeping. And she stoops down and she looks in and the scripture says she te- sees two angels. It says one is standing where the head of Jesus would have been had he still been there, although he was gone. And one was standing at the feet of Jesus if it, where, where he would be if he, if he were still there. And he wasn't. And so one of the angels looks up and speaks to Mary and says, dear woman, why are you crying? And she says, well, they've taken away. Now, isn't this interesting? She says, someone who's very close to Jesus, she doesn't see. well, he's gone because he rose from the dead. She actually doesn't say that. She's not even thinking that, even though he's said it a million times. She said, well, they, they must have taken him away. They must have taken the body. And I don't know where they've put him. Where where did they put his body? Because it's the farthest thing from her mind, even though Jesus has said it, is that he's actually risen from the dead. And so she turns and she walks away from there. And now, now she's walking out away from the tomb, right? And she sees someone there. And this person speaks to her and says, Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, the resurrected Jesus. And who are you looking for? She has no idea that it's Jesus. Even though he said that he's going to do it, it's still not on their minds. I just think that's comical to me, and we'd probably be in the same boat. And so Mary still doesn't know who he is. She says, sir, if you've taken him away, because he didn't raise from the dead, if you've taken him away, tell me, where, where did you put him? And I'll go and get him. And then this would be a scene out of a movie, because I just love the way this happens, because she's, she's kind of you know, just looking down maybe, and he speaks, he's talking with her. And then all of a sudden he says, Mary. And you know those voices that when they say your name, you just know who it is. Did your mom use your middle name? Y'all were bad. You were because that's the only time that I guess used. You know, my mom would say, Neil J. Right? And he just says to her, he just goes, Mary. She just knew. She just knew. She turns to him and she cries out, Rabboni, Rabbi, Teacher, Master. She absolutely, 100% knew that this was Jesus. Like, I just think that's interesting, right? It's the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Now, listen, I'll just tell you, there, there are some other theories out there, and you, you, you've probably heard some of those. You should be aware of them. Many, many people have, have thought, well, the, the disciples just stole the body. The disciples stole the body and they just took it. because, and, and there was a Roman plot to do that because you know that the resurrection of Jesus is just killing the Romans. They, they've got more than they can deal with. At the Jewish temple, those religious people, the, the religious officials, it's killing them. The, all they got to do is find a body and this whole thing is over. And Kimmy and I, we say this all the time. If, because they found like archaeological remains of Noah's Ark, which was way before this, and we say this all the time. If there's ever a report and they find the body of Jesus, we won't be here anymore. Our Saturday mornings will be at Caribou. Like, that's probably what we'll do. Yeah, we have our favorite coffee shop, right? But why would we come here? Why would we come here if there's not truly resurrection? And so this idea that, well, they stole the body, they stole the body. That's a theory. That's a theory. Let me, let me just speak to that really quickly. First, we know this. We, we know that that in, in all likelihood absolutely did not happen for this reason. We know that there was a large boulder rolled in front of the tomb. And so just even having a large boulder there, it's like, well, Are we just going to roll? Like, that would take some real work and some real, right? And then not only about, but the boulder was sealed with a Roman seal, which would keep the rock in place, but also, and more importantly, is this if you break that Roman seal without Roman approval, you will be put to Roman death, right? And Roman death means this oh, you're going to die, and we're going to take our time. It's going to be slow. Like, everybody knows that that would happen. But the third reason I say it's just a farce is because in front of the tomb was a Roman guard. A Roman guard, just because that's not our, our language that we use today, isn't one. It's not a Roman guard. It's a Roman guard as in that would mean 16 armed and trained soldiers. They would all have, be assigned to a six-foot-by-six-foot six plot. That's how they spaced out, roughly six feet-by-six feet. By six feet. And, and they're spread in front of the tomb. Do we really believe that 12 apostles could overthrow 16 armed and highly trained Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers know that when they're standing there, by the way, if anybody falls asleep, not only are you put to death, but all 16 are put to death. What are the odds that that would really happen? Some of you would remember, raise your hand if you grew up in the 70s. Okay, just me, good. So anyway, (laughs) 1972, You might remember this, was Watergate. And if you weren't around, it was maybe the greatest political scandal that our country remembers. Watergate was where uh, some of the Republicans, uh, a handful of Republicans, uh, had this scheme and they they bugged the Democratic National Committee's office, which is in Watergate. Watergate is in a specific area of Washington, D.C., and there's some apartment complexes and there's some office buildings. And the Democratic National Committee had their offices there, and they were bugged. Uh, in order to prepare and try to come up with some dirt from the election. And one of the guys who headed that that up was a guy named Chuck Colson. Some of you remember that name. Chuck Colson was the self-described henchman of President Nixon. And in Washington, he was known as uh, Nixon's guy for dirty tricks. And uh, so Watergate, which, remember how tough Watergate was? Because, man, when you're a kid and you're in, like, second or third grade, all you want to do is come home from school and watch Gilligan's Island, and Watergate is on. That's how tough it was on the country. You couldn't even watch Gilligan anymore. And it was on, we didn't have no CNN. We didn't have no Fox. Right? It was just on network television all day, every day. And eventually at the end of uh, Watergate, uh, Chuck Colson, along with a couple of other were, men, were imprisoned. They were put in prison. Chuck Colson, as a result of being in prison and the prison ministry there, came to faith in Jesus served his prison time, and when he got out, and even in there, after he came to Jesus, he had ministry in prison, and then he got out, and Chuck Colson had a powerful ministry. He, he did some speaking, his preaching, did a lot of writing. Chuck Colson has the most interesting statement about the resurrection that I've ever heard, and you'll, I think you'll be fascinated. This is, what, this is what Chuck Colson, he said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? This is good stuff. It says, because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raise from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. And by the way, they were all killed. They were all killed. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now, when you think about Jesus, you better think about the ministry that Jesus had, and then you gotta stop and you gotta think about the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection. But there's a third thing that I want you to think about this morning. We'll get into our text because I think this is really important. And, again, maybe this will be a refresher for some of you, a reminder for some of you. But I'm hoping that some of you just go, okay, hadn't really thought about that. I want you to think about the deity of Jesus, the deos, the godness of Jesus. Now look in your text, John chapter 1. We'll just work our way quickly through this. The text says this, in the beginning of the word, now if, if I have my Bible, I've had a paper Bible out, I'd underline, I'd circle, I'd highlight the word, word, and I want you to notice that it is capitalized. All translators capitalize it. This says in the beginning the word already, it already existed, meaning it's eternal. This word, whatever that is, was with God and the word was God. Now this word, word, is very important. It's a very important word. You need to understand this. It's the Greek word logos, and it literally means the expression of. It's where we get our word logo. The logo is the expression of. It brings to mind instantly. It causes you to think of this, right? So let me just flash some quick pictures. You just tell me. First thing that comes to your mind, what do you say? Nike. Nike. Boom. You think of Nike, but you don't just think brand Nike. You think Nike. You might remember a pair of Nikes that you had or a shirt that you had and Go ahead and imagine for a second that you were actually running really fast. Nike, it's the essence of, it is the logo, it is the logo. Here's one, you ready, what's this? McDonald's. Boom, how many people smell a Whopper right now? You can smell it, you can taste your chicken nuggets, right? You can taste the fries, right? Because it's the logo, it's the essence of McDonald's, right? Some of you just got sick, that's all right, good for you. <laughs> what comes to mind? And you say, well, of course it's an apple, but that that little bite out of it, that didn't make you think of an apple like you were in an apple orchard. It made you think of your phone, it made you think of of your laptop or of your computer, you've got a MacBook, it made you think of, 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 of an iPod, right? Because it's the logo. It's the essence of Apple. It was the essence of McDonald's. It was the essence of Nike. Those are the things you think of. Okay, now look at your verse again. Look in the Bible. In the beginning, the logos, the essence of whatever, it already, it's eternal, it existed. The essence of, the logo was with God, and the essence, the logo was God. And then he's going to go on, and now he's going to, John, because we're like, what is this word thing? And P.S., if you read your Bible sometimes, and you're like, I don't think I really get that. Welcome to the club. Because the rest of us are right there with you. We read things in the Bible sometimes We're like, I'm not sure I get that yet. Right, he's going to give us some clues. Next he says this. He, stop. Just gave us a pronoun. Just giving you a clue. Who's this he? Who's this he? He goes on, he says, he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. There's another pronoun. He's given us another clue as to who this logos is and nothing was created except through him. There's another pronoun. We're starting to figure out who this was, right? And then you go all the way to verse 14, and he's going to drop the bomb on you, and he's going to make it very clear. John's going to make it very clear who the logos, who the essence is. Who is this word, right? John says this. So the word logos, the essence, became human. You tracking? He became human, and he made his home among us. You still with me? Everybody's tracking. He was full of unfailing love. And he was full, this logos, this essence of God was full of faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. You tell me, the word is who? It's Jesus. Okay, now go back to verse 1. Look in your text. Go back to verse 1. And it says this. In the beginning, the word, Jesus already existed. The word, this essence, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Man, to say anything less, he, here's what you need to walk away from here this morning. It's not that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. To say that he is anything less is either incomplete or it's erroneous. Who was Jesus? He was a good teacher. You ain't done. Who was Jesus? He was a good prophet. You're not done. He was the Son of God. You're still not done. He is God. Jesus is God. It's one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity. If it, sometimes people say, hey, what do you think about this group? Are they Christians? I say, well, ask them a simple question. Who's God? Or who's Jesus? Ask them, who is Jesus? Look, the Mormons will tell you. And we, we love our Mormon friends, right? Right? But the Mormons will tell you, oh, he was the son of God. Is he God? Well, he's not God. Jehovah's Witness, we love our Jehovah's Witness friends. They will tell you, well, he's the son of God. Uh, I had, uh, I don't know how many years ago, it was at least six or seven years ago, I had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses knock at my door. I'm like, welcome to my house. Come on in. And so there's always like there's somebody who's been around for a while, and then there's an apprentice. Right? And so I said, oh, right on. So I like to speak to the apprentice sometimes. I was like, man, this is awesome. I love that you guys go door to door. I love that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we start talking for a while and I just said to the, other, the younger guy, I said, hey, tell me this one. Who is Jesus? And I said, he said, oh, he was the son of God. And I said, absolutely, right on. We totally agree. What else? Didn't have much to say. So the scripture said that Jesus is God. Now, here's the challenge when you talk to Joe's Witnesses. They have their own translation of the Bible, very similar to ours. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. So let me just tell you this. No credible Greek scholar, a scholar in the Greek language, translates it that way. Nobody, nobody with any credibility as a Greek scholar We'll translate it that way. Greek scholars, and I'm talking about Christian, -Christian, non-Christian, non-Christian Greek scholars, when they look at the original text, it all says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the hallmark of Christianity. Anything less, anything less is inaccurate. Jesus Christ is God. And so here's your big so what today. We always give a big so what. This is our bottom line. Jesus is only Jesus if Jesus is God. That's Jesus. Anything less is inaccurate. Now, people will oftentimes say, Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I was like, Well, you never read the Bible. Because Jesus, over and over and over, Jesus claims to be God. Luke 25, John chapter 2, John chapter 8, John chapter, I mean, throughout, in Mark, Jesus claims. It's, it's just not always as obvious. So I'm going to show you one really quick. I'll show you really, one really quick, and I'll show you how Jesus over and over claimed, and I'll show you how you can tell that he claimed to be God. Uh, Jesus uh, is in a discussion in John chapter 8. He's in a discussion with people who supposedly were believed in him. They thought that he was perhaps the Messiah. They're, they're thinking that. And Jesus is in this conversation with them, and, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation. And at one point he says, well, look, those who truly believe in me, those who truly believe in me, like you, you would understand this. And, and they say, well, we believe. And he says, no, 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 no. You, you don't believe. You're not children of God. You're children of your father, the devil. Well, that doesn't go well generally when you say that. And they say, no, 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 we're Abraham's children. We're Abraham's children. And uh, so, so they begin to have this dis- discussion about Abraham and being Abraham's father, uh, children, right? And Jesus says this. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. And they're kind of like, Abraham looked forward to your coming. And then just when everybody's leaning back just a bit and they're all on their heels, he says, he saw it and he was glad. Now, what Jesus really meant was he rejoiced at the thought that someday there would be this Messiah that I would come. And they're thinking to themselves, he saw it. Wait a minute, you and Abraham were there together? How did you see each other? Like, that's impossible. Like, how would that even happen? And so they say to Jesus, they say, well, you're not even 50 years old. How could you say that you've seen Abraham lived hundreds of years before? How could you even say that you've seen Abraham? Right? It would just been so fun to be there at some of these. And Jesus says, "I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am." Now, if we don't get that, if we don't understand it, you go, "Well, that's really bad grammar, wasn't it?" I was. Like, that's just plain bad grammar. Except that's not what Jesus was saying. And these people knew it. And I'm going to show you how they knew it in just a minute. But what Jesus was do- doing is he was referring back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out working for his father-in-law. His father-in-law is Jethro, and he is a, he's a Midian priest. And Jesus is working for him, and he's tending sheep. And it says he gets to the edge of the wilderness, kind of. And he comes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. And, and Moses starts to walk up Mount Horeb. And he sees this bush. And the bush is on fire, and here's, which wouldn't be that crazy. But the bush is on fire and it's not being consumed. It's not being burned up. And Moses is like, that's weird. So Moses walks a little bit closer to it. And all of a sudden God speaks to him. And he says, Moses. Now, that would be a little crazy, right? And he says, yes, yes, Lord, here I am. And remember this, God says, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. You take your shoes off. And so Moses takes his shoes off and he walks up. And, and God begins to tell him, he says, listen to me, Moses. I see my people down in Egypt and they're in pain and I see it. And I see how they're they they they're suffering under Pharaoh. I see it all. I see them, I feel them, I hear them. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send you Moses. I'm sending you. I'm sending you to deliver my people. And, and you know, Moses gets real nervous. He's like, but but he's kind of doing that thing. He's like, well, here's the deal. Even if I go down there, when I go to the Israelites, who do I, who do I, who do I say that I, who, who do I say is sending me? Who, who do I say that is sending me? God, like, what am I supposed to tell them? And God replies, and God tells them this. God speaking to himself says, listen, I am who I am. He's saying, I'm eternal. I'm eternal. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The eternal one has sent me to you. This I am is a reference to God saying, I am. Okay, now go back to our text. Look at what Jesus said. I tell you the truth, before Abraham even was, Before he was even born. I am. He's claiming to be God. Jesus is saying, I'm God. And you want to know how I know all the people knew that? Because at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. Because Jesus claimed to be God. And some of the folks were just ticked. Oh, you're claiming to be God. And they all grab a rock and they're going to throw it at him. Listen to me. One of the things you need to understand is this. Jesus is controversial because he's God. Do you know this? We live in, a, in such a spiritual world. Have you ever noticed this? We live in a very spiritual age. You can say all kinds of things about spiritual things. You can, use, you can say God. You can say God and nobody gets all that bent out of shape. Say God. Nobody gets that bent out of shape. You can say spiritual things. Oh, my spirit, my duh. You can say spiritual things. Nobody gets too bent out of shape. Say the name of Jesus and folks start to get heated up. You say Jesus, folks aren't real happy about that. Jesus is controversial because he's God. He claimed to be God. He proved that he was God. So let me just just narrow this down and and, and say this. When we consider the ministry of Jesus and you see the resurrection of Jesus, you'd have to conclude the deity of Jesus. Because his ministry and what he did and the fact that he rose from the dead... Who else could do that but God? And so what I'm saying is this, if he is indeed God, then I think we should pay attention to what he says. Right? Because I'll tell you this much, if a guy says that he's going to be crucified and that three days later he's going to rise from the dead and then he actually does it, I say we listen to that guy. Because it ain't bragging if you can back it up. He just flat out did it. I think we ought to listen to what that guy says. I want you to see something that Jesus said before we leave this morning. Remember, one of Jesus' closest friends was actually Lazarus. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus is coming down to Bethany. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. Jesus is kind of on his way down. And they send word. They say, our brother Lazarus is sick. Jesus, you got to get here. And Jesus is like, "Yeah, I'm going to take my time. So Lazarus dies. Now Jesus gets down to Bethany and the sisters run out. Martha, she runs out to me. She's like, Jesus, if you'd have been here earlier, our brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, oh, listen to me, Martha, I'm the resurrection of life. And anyone who believes in me, Jesus, will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Now remember, this is God. This is Jesus' God. This is God saying this to us. The divine one. And he says a couple of things, anyone who believes, this, is, this word isn't like what we think so oftentimes we've talked about this, it's not like, mm, sure, I believe that. No, it's the Greek word, pistis, it's a word we translate as faith, it means this, it's a belief that is translated into our behavior. If you really believe it in this fashion, we would know it, we'll see it in your life. And he says, anyone who believes in me, who lives their life then based on who I am, will live even after dying. And everyone who lives and believes, right, because they go together. They'll never die. They'll never die. He's talking about eternal life. Jesus is saying if you believe in him in a way that says this is how I live, that it comes out of you, there's eternal life. There will never be death. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life. And I think we got to take this to heart because this isn't just some kook who said it. This is God himself speaking to us. He's speaking to you. And I want to just point out two other words to you this morning because this may apply to some of you. And some of you, this this may speak to you. But these words are really important to me. Because maybe you grew up a foul-mouthed kid. Someone say blank you and you say blank you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Maybe you say, O'Neil, oh you don't even know. I've done things so much worse than that. I'm telling you, if you're in the house this morning, if you're on TV this morning, you can hear me. If you can see this, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. That anyone, anyone who believes and then lives, that everyone who believes and then lives will have eternal life. Will have everlasting life. And I want to make sure you hear that this morning before you leave. I want to make sure you know that this morning before you leave. That is available to everyone. So you'll have a chance for that in just a minute. And so we said our big so what, remember? Is Jesus is only Jesus if Jesus is God. But we also have a big now what. Like what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do? And our now what today is going to be a very specific declaration of surrender. I'm going to ask you guys to throw that up on the board. We have a declaration of surrender that we're, we're all going to state this together for people who want to. But our declaration of surrender is this. Because surrender, the only thing that's appropriate... When you recognize that Jesus is God, the sovereign one, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the only thing that would be appropriate is that we actually surrender our lives to him. We say, okay, 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 you're God, I'm not. Like that's the only thing that's appropriate. So our declaration of surrender is this, I believe this. I live my life in a manner that says, in in Jesus Christ, that he was before the beginning. He's eternal. He was with the Father, that all things were created for him and by him, that he came to the earth as a man, that he lived a sinless life, and that he died for my sins. I actually believe that. I believe then that he rose from the dead. I acknowledge that. I believe that he rose from the dead, validating, proving that he was actually God, It was and is God, that he conquered sin and death. That he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he reigns and rules. The scriptures are very clear about that. And so therefore, right now I confess my sin. I agree. To confess means to agree with God. I agree that I'm a sinner. I agree that I've sinned. I'm I'm acknowledging that, God. And I surrender my life to him. I, I, I say, Jesus, whatever you want. It's not about what I want anymore. God, our ask. God, strengthen me today so that every thought, every word, every deed bring honor to you. I submit to your Lordship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So this is what I'm asking you to think about that for a second. Just think about it. Because we're going to make that our declaration of surrender this morning. And I imagine there's a few different types of declarations that will be made this morning. For some of us, man, i got to say this every morning. This is my life every day. This has got to be my life every day. This kind of surrender every day. And some of you would say, I live this every day and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it again today. I'm going to make that surrender, that declaration of surrender again today. Some of you are going to say this, man. I've got to make that declaration of surrender because I have been so far away from God I've just been so far away I've been showing up for church once in a while, but I 've been so far away from God and I've got, to, I've got to drive a stake into the ground again today and I've got to make this a claim today. And some of you, I think, may say this I didn't, I didn't expect this this morning, and I just kind of walked into church because somebody invited me, and I'm just kind of checking it out, but you know what I'm ready. God has been revealing himself to me. You could do it for the very first time today. You could turn a cha- page. It, it could be a whole new chapter for your life. So nobody has to. Nobody has to. But if you feel God leading you to do that for whatever of those reasons, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet and we're gonna make this declaration together. So we're gonna read this together. This is our declaration today. We're gonna start with I believe. Let's read this together. I believe in Jesus Christ, that he was before the beginning with the Father, that all things were created for him and by him, and that he came to the earth as a man, lived a sinless life, and died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. Validating that he was and is God, that he conquered sin and death and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he reigns and rules. Therefore, I now confess my sin and I surrender my life to him. God, strengthen me today so that every thought, word, and deed bring honor to you. I submit to your lordship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me pray for us together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together with a family and worship and encourage each other. But give worship and praise to your great name. God, this morning, in particular, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him, that he died for us, that he rose again. And Jesus, this morning, we declare you are God. And as such, Jesus, our rightful approach is to surrender to you.